Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but uh, often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK-centric, on the big issues of the day. In this episode of the Moses and Methuselah podcast, Peter Sy and I are going to tackle an issue on which opinions and passions still run quite high, and that is what has been the impact of Brexit, the vote by which the uh, UK decided to leave the European Union. The referendum was back in 2016, but we didn't actually leave the EU until about three or four years ago when we finally came to the end of the transition agreement. So, Peter, I think I'm going to start by asking you what you think the impact of Brexit has been from your perspective as a passionate Europhile. And then I'll tell you what I think has been happening on this side of the water, accepting at the very outset that it's hard to say that Brexit uh, to date has been a conspicuous success. Which is why the question we are asking today, which is, is Brexit working, is probably the wrong question. The right question might have been, will Brexit work or can Brexit work? And it's probably too early to tell. But nonetheless, we can draw certain conclusions. And I think that if if I may, Jonathan, I'll give you the conclusion from the European perspective rather than from the UK perspective. And then you can discuss the UK perspective. I think that on balance, the experience of Brexit has actually ended up strengthening the cohesion of the European Union. And so for the EU, on balance, I repeat on balance, because there are pros and cons, it was probably positive for the EU. You can then tell me whether it was positive or negative for the UK. But the reason I say this is that other EU members will think twice about leaving the EU. And so I think what Brexit has demonstrated is that the EU is, as a body, more powerful than its member states. Would I agree with that? Well, I don't suppose it's really for me to judge whether the EU is in a better place than it was before. That certainly was, I know, their intention when they were trying to negotiate the Brexit deal. They would deter any other country from wanting to leave. And uh, certainly the short-term experience of the UK perhaps uh, has helped to serve that purpose. Just from the UK perspective, I've got a number of points I wanted to make. The first one is rather a debating point, uh, which is that it is too early to say, not just because it's only three or four years since we actually left the EU, the single market, But also because I think back to 1972, when the UK actually joined the European Union the first time. And then if you'd asked me, come back five or seven years later and said, has that been a positive for the UK experience since uh, joining the EU? And you'd have to say 1979, we were in the middle of a really terrible time for the UK. We had to go to the IMF. We had terrible unemployment. We had rubbish in the streets and all those kind of things. A terrible period, high inflation very poor economic performance. So if you'd asked me then, well, has joining the EU been good for the UK? Well, it would be very hard to disentangle all the other effects like OPEC and so on. But you'd struggle to say that it was an immediate success. 
And so in the same way, I would say that in terms of Brexit, given what's happened since, including COVID, the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, which are very exceptional events, it's theoretically very difficult to try and work out what's happened to the UK is how much of that is down to Brexit and how much is it just down to other things that have been going on. Having said that, I don't disagree that the short term impact of Brexit has almost certainly been negative in economic terms. And the jury is still out on the political situation. The jury is still out on the political situation. And one of my greatest friends, who's a fanatic Brexiteer, keeps making the same point by pointing out to me that Rome wasn't built in a day. Yeah, fair enough. And therefore, we should probably have to watch and observe how these things develop. But I think that from the British perspective, there was, a, I think, quite a big miscalculation on the part of the British political class, which is that while the UK was in the EU, it did succeed in slowing down, to a certain extent, blocking the widening and deepening of the European Union, especially the deepening of the European Union, because people like Tony Blair always felt that the more new members there are, the more difficult it will be for the EU to achieve ever closer union, simply because there are too many members and it becomes unviable. Now, you could argue about that, but the fact that the UK is now no longer in the EU means that the speed at which the EU can continue towards the ever closer union is accelerated. The British were almost always voting against any matter that needed to be voted on, whatever it is, big picture or little picture. And in that respect, the British are no longer around. I think it's lost an influence with regard to where the EU is going. And I'm very pleased that the British have been so instrumental in pushing back against the Russians in Ukraine. I'm very pleased to see that because a lot of the other countries are dithering and the British don't need to dither. They can just get on with it. And they did. So in that respect, one must be very grateful to the British and to the British political class. Well, I totally agree with that. As a country, we are very happy not to be in the position of constantly blocking things going in the EU because that was the major, if you like, cultural and political factor that, in my view, eventually drove the decision to go for Brexit and leave the European Union. The sense that the UK, rightly or wrongly, was not a leader in the European Union. The French and the Germans had that pretty well sewn up. And we were constantly the spectre at the feast, if you like, trying to slow things down, because we do have a different outlook on a number of very core fundamental issues. So I think we're much happier being outside that part of the process, economically is another matter, but being outside what are always you know, dominated the headlines, these interminable meetings where the UK position was consistently overruled or ignored, though we occasionally we could boycott progress, which is not very positive, as you say. I think we're very happy about that. I can't tell you what a relief it is not to have to spend a lot of time reading the newspapers about relationships with the EU. I mean, it dominated our politics for a long time, not in a very helpful way. And uh, we don't have much of that anymore. Obviously, there's been a lot of rumblings and issues around the Northern Ireland Protocol, which I think is now very good news that the UK and the EU appear to have a much better working relationship than they did when Boris Johnson was in charge or Liz Truss was around. So I think that's a positive and we've seen some progress there. So we can all get on with living our lives in the way that we want to. 
we value rightly or wrongly our uh, long history of being an independent country, and I think that'll carry on. Whether we have more or less influence, I'm not so sure. That's for others to say. But I would rather think that, as you say about Ukraine and so on, we've actually been able to make a, a stance which has had an impact. So I'm quite pleased about that. Yes, I can't deny any of that. But it does make me think of what de Gaulle said when he refused a situation where the UK would join the European economic community because he said the British don't really, well, it's not that they don't understand but they see the EU, let's call it the EU for the sake of simplicity, they see the EU as a pure commercial venture. The point of joining the EU is exclusively for trade reasons and not for political reasons. And because Europe needs a political development rather than simply a commercial one, if the British don't adhere to that, which they don't, they should not be allowed in. So that's one point I would make. The other point I would make is that you can't actually expect the British to adhere to the political aims of the European Union because the British were instrumental in creating a Europe of nation states after the First World War, which, of course, paved the way for a lot of big problems. But they were responsible for, together with the French, of smashing the at the time, prevailing empires and transforming their component parts into nation states. Because the British were responsible for the creation of the nation states of Europe, you can't really expect that these two different political outlooks will ever gel into a full agreement which would be necessary. And that's different from the approaches of the Central European countries who know very well the damage that the existence of nation-states is prone to continuing to make in Europe. Yes, I understand there's a very different perspective in Central Europe, and that's for very good reasons. But equally, you have to understand the British position, which is obviously rooted in many, many centuries of history. Their primary objective in all their foreign policy was to prevent one other country dominating the continent of Europe be that the French or be that Germans, which historically has been the case. And therefore, they were always uh, prime exponents of divide and rule or maintaining a balance of power across Europe. That's a pattern that's gone back over many years of foreign policy in the UK and is rooted in our semi-isolationist stance. We are an island nation, after all, and we see ourselves as distinct from history and culture of the European landmass, at least. Whether it's still relevant in the 21st century is another matter altogether. If you look at what's happened in the UK since Brexit, it's a number of interesting trends which may or may not be relevant here. One is that, at the moment at least, we're actually seeing convergence towards the centre in UK politics. We've got a Labour Party which is moving to the centre, and we've got a Tory party which is still divided, but is now run by centrists, for better or worse. And the populist parties that we've seen in some countries across Europe, they've been disappearing in the UK, Brexit has almost kind of cleansed that problem. So in a way, even though our politics is still very polarised, that's our system. But we are a kind of more calmer country in a way than we were now that we've lanced the Brexit boil, if I can put it that way. The problem we have over here, I think, is slightly different. And the problem is that one of the reasons we joined the EU in the first place was because our economy was faring so badly after the war. We were the sick man of Europe and things were not going well. We are high inflation 
low productivity country. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we still are. Things did get better while we were members of the EU, not in the initial period, as I've said, but in the latter period. But was that due to what Mrs. Thatcher did or was it due to being part of the EU? It's, again, a debatable issue. What I think the main criticism of Brexit by the majority of people in this country is that we really have had no idea of what we were going to do once we got Brexit. There was a lot of ideological talk on the right about how wonderful it was all going to be. We're going to be a free trading nation and so on. Well, we remain a high inflation, low productivity country. And we haven't done much in the last few years to do anything about that. You can blame COVID and you can blame the Ukraine war and so on. But I think at the heart of our whole political system is a, is a bit of a hole where some kind of coherent strategy for making the most of Brexit should be. The problem being compounded by the fact that, as in many countries, our politicians are very short-term oriented. They're not actually doing much to attack the more fundamental issues that are determining our low productivity and uh, high inflation. I'm glad you mentioned productivity because low productivity has very much been at the centre of the British problems. I also sadly agree with you that the, I mean, the word British disease is coming back into the newspapers, not so much in the UK, but outside the UK. And I think that is a pity. But an important change that is taking place, I think, apart from what you said about the polarisation, the absence of nationalist parties, and we saw what happened to the Scottish Nationalist Party recently, is the personalities in question. I can assure you that when Boris Johnson was in number 10, his standing and the standing of the country as a whole could hardly have been lower. And I think that apart from the fact that he was accused of being a liar from morning to evening, I think what was much more dangerous was the fact that the British signature could no longer be trusted on a document. And I think that for a country to arrive at that position is a very dangerous situation. And fast forward to the present prime minister and the present government, that bit is no longer the case. When you see President Macron and um, Rishi Sunak embracing each other and smiling and chatting, you do get the feeling that these are two people from the same generation. And to a certain extent, they share a background. They know how to read a balance sheet. They know what a basis point is. And so one feels a little bit more positive that the key person in Europe, because he is one of the key people, and the UK will get to be on better terms. And so one has a feeling that the page is being turned and that the outlook is much more positive than what we saw in the last few years under the previous Tory government. I think that's very important because you shouldn't pick a fight with your stronger neighbour. And I think Rishi Sunak has understood that, whereas Boris Johnson loved picking a fight with his bigger neighbour because he refused to accept that they were the bigger neighbour. And I think all that bit has gone. I don't think he has any chance of going back into government. I think his days are numbered. And I think that's a positive. What do you think? Yes, I would agree with you uh, 100% about that. Boris Johnson is a sort of Marmite figure. You either love him or hate him. 
I think most people, though, can now see that his modus operandi, which comes no surprise to anybody who, like myself, has a background in journalism and newspapers, they know what he was like when he was a newspaper columnist and a magazine editor, and he hasn't really changed at all. His personal standards of behaviour are frankly deplorable, <laughs> and he brought that to the international stage. Whereas I think Rishi Sunak, as you correctly point out, is a completely different sort of figure. If our politics was not so trivialised, I think he would be more appreciated than he is so far. He is a hard-working, earnest, serious fellow from a very impressive background, but he suffers from the fact that he and his wife are incredibly wealthy, and that is still seen as a negative. That's unfortunate, but he is a very impressive individual, and I think that is coming across slowly. Whether it's enough to win the next election, which has to be held quite soon, 18 months or so, is another matter altogether. We may get somebody else. The polls suggest we will get Sir Keir Starmer and his gang. Whether that's an improvement, whether he's as impressive as Rishi Sunak, I rather doubt personally. But the general point you make is absolutely true. I would there only encounter that every country goes through phases when they elect politicians who aren't particularly impressive. I don't think you have a very high opinion of the German leader at the moment. So <laughs> it comes round, it goes round. And to blame it all on Boris, I think, would be a little excessive. I think fundamentally we have a serious political problem in our country, which is to do with our political system no longer really working the way that it used to work for a whole variety of reasons. It's really not particularly conducive to good administration and good policy making, And I'm afraid that is something which is crying out for reform, but there's very little chance of us getting it in the short term. We do have this very dysfunctional two-party system at the moment. It used to be a strength. Now I think it's pretty clear that it's becoming a weakness because of the way that it's been uh, implemented and interpreted. I agree with you 100%. And I wanted to suggest touching on a point because you mentioned Sir Keir Starmer. Something that he said last week which caused a sort of revolution in the ranks of the Tories and certainly among the ranks of the Brexiteers, which is that he was suggesting that those EU nationals who have settled status in the UK, that they should be allowed to vote in parliamentary elections. And the basis on which he's suggesting that is the old principle of no taxation without representation. And that if you live in a country, whatever nationality you are, and you pay taxes, that you should be allowed to vote in the parliamentary elections. That has relatively little to do with Brexit. But it did get me to think. And on balance, it's probably the right thing to do, even though it would change, if you like, the mathematics so I just wanted to ask you in passing what you think of that idea. Well, it's quite difficult to look past the fact that this is obviously a method of electoral calculation on the Labour Party's part, just as their proposal sometime back to enfranchise 16-year-olds was based on pure electoral calculation. It's not something which particularly smells very good, and I'm not sure that people have thought through the implications of that. I think it would be more impressive if there was evidence that countries in the EU were going to do the same, which I don't think they do do. <laughs> it seems a rather one-sided thing to do. If generally uh, that was a policy, I, mean, I don't know how it would work in the EU. It would be quite interesting. You have European elections, but you don't have a European government. So it would be quite interesting if you allowed everybody who was a citizen of the EU to vote for the government in France. But I don't see that happening. So I'm not sure. It just seems to me that I doubt it's going to be very popular. And I think it raises some quite complicated issues around fairness and equality and so on. But uh, it's an interesting idea. Yeah. The answer to your question about France 
is that, for example, in France, the non-French who live in France, they do have the power to vote, but not in the parliamentary elections. It was more like at local elections or the mayoral elections. That's the same in the UK. My wife can vote in some of the local elections. She can. Okay, fine. And then as far as the European is concerned, I mean, we don't have European passports in the EU. We don't have that. I think we should have that. But what we do have is a European Parliament, which is sitting in Strasbourg. And everyone who lives in the European Union is encouraged to go and vote in the European Parliament. So it's slightly different, but it is not that different. And I also read, I don't know if this is true, that if you are a national of one of the Commonwealth countries and you live in the UK, then you're allowed to vote in the UK parliamentary elections. Is that right? Well, you've rather thrown me by that because I don't know the answer off the top of my head, but I imagine it probably is right, yeah. I mean, the Commonwealth is a sort of peculiar UK invention which has created some other oddities. I mean, the one issue, if I can just bypass that because I don't know the answer, I think you're right. You know, we haven't talked about migration yet and immigration, which is the big topic at the moment in UK politics, again, rightly or wrongly. And it's been very strange, this whole issue of immigration, because there are obviously two issues. There's the issue of the illegal migrants and there's an issue of legal immigration. And as you know, the most recent figures in the UK show that we had a record net immigration into the country last year. And people might be rather surprised by that, given Brexit. They thought Brexit was all about stopping nasty foreigners coming in to take our jobs and so on. But actually, it's not been quite like that. Obviously, the number of EU immigrants has come down, uh, legal EU immigrants. A lot of Polish and other workers have gone home and not come back. But non-EU immigration has been soaring, partly because of Commonwealth issues. We've allowed a lot of Hong Kong people to come to UK if they want to. And similarly with some Ukrainian people coming here under asylum or other programs because of the war. But we have allowed more immigrants into the country. And as far as I know, it's not really a political issue. Legal immigration is not really stirring populist passions in the way that many perhaps expected if they interpreted Brexit as being a we don't like foreigners kind of attitude, which some people did interpret it as. I think the answer to that is very, very simple. The British don't consider members of Commonwealth countries as foreigners. They don't. They have some kind of vision of the Commonwealth being that what it it is supposed to be, about Commonwealth. I like to remind Brexiteers that the European Union is also about Commonwealth, (laughs) even if it's sort of different. But I think that's the answer. The Commonwealth citizens have a completely different status or position in the mentality of the British, presumably it's because most of the Commonwealth countries used to belong to the British Empire in the old days. So it obviously has to do with that, whereas the European countries never belonged to the British Empire. So I think the Brexiters would say you can't confuse the two. And if there's a net immigration which has gone up from the Commonwealth countries, that has nothing to do with the fact that we don't like foreigners from Europe coming to our shores. I think that's the way a Brexiter would reply. That's right. But I mean, I think it wasn't the way that it was popularly seen at the time. It was seen as kind of Little Britain, kind of, you know, isolationist, not really interested in becoming a more culturally diversified, racially diversified country, which we are becoming. And indeed, in some ways, you could argue we are, in a way, more integrated than a lot of other countries, including some in Europe, has to be said. So that's, in a way, been a kind of positive for me that's come out of the post-Brexit period. 
I think there are others. There's the fact that we've shown some political leadership of our own, as you mentioned, vis-a-vis Ukraine. We still do a lot of things well. We put on a good funeral. We're still one of the real big powers in the music business. We are still got quite a lot of interesting scientific advances that unfortunately get commercialized by the Americans mostly, and so on. So still a lot of things good going for us. And I think that my overall verdict on Brexit is, A, it's too early to say, but the short-term economic damage is there, but it's not catastrophic. It's bad, but it's not catastrophic. And I have to mention that I did a quick bit of research into what various economic institutes are saying about what the impact of Brexit has been. And needless to say, they have absolutely no agreement at all about it. They can't even get close to each other on some measures. So yes, it's been economic costly, but I think even the sensible Brexiteers and I should perhaps remind listeners that I didn't vote for Brexit, even the sensible Brexiteers, many of whom I know personally, they did it for reasons that weren't to do with economic gains. So this idea that somehow Brexit would be a net economic positive as we went into a new world trading regime was basically nonsense. And I think most people who voted for Brexit knew that, but they wanted the freedom or the sense of political freedom. But I can't tell you how poisonous it was being in the UK while this whole Brexit drama was playing out. It was just 10 years of life we'd much rather have back, frankly, than all that terrible experience. And the divisions in households and all those kind of things. We're poorer, but we're more at peace with ourselves, is how I would put it. And for the future, well, it's up to our political leaders and indeed our voters to grasp the nettle and try and work out what it is we can do to make ourselves a different, more productive economy than we've got at the moment. Yeah, I quite agree, indeed. I think that as we approach the end of today's conversation, I think there is one question that I do want to ask you or a topic that we maybe should touch on. Given the fact that in 2016, when the referendum stroke plebiscite, whatever it was, took place, there was a large minority of voters who bothered to go and vote and there was a scrape-through situation, and Brexit prevailed. But given that a lot of those people who voted at the time have since died, and given that a lot of people who didn't vote because they were too young, they were not allowed to vote, but they've now reached their voting age, and given that seven years has passed, and that things are different from what they were expecting, my question to you is this. Would you be in favour of holding a new referendum on the EU or not? The answer is absolutely not. Not while I'm alive anyway. I'm very happy for future generations to have a go at it. But no, having just said what I've said about what a terrible experience it's been, the last thing I'd want is to go through it all over again, even if the result was different, which I'm not sure that it would necessarily be different. I can't imagine the circumstance in which it would be brought in in the foreseeable future. And maybe you're right. But the other factor is, of course, that you're quite right what you said. Old people are dying and young people are coming into the voting force. But, of course, the middle population is getting older and they're becoming old people. So they may well change their views as they get older. I think you're right. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels, or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.